Welcome, fellow crime addicts, to our weekly CA meeting. I'm Kylie. And I'm Tay. Grab a cup of coffee. And, and let's, let's get, get our fix. episode we are talking about Robert Picton while sipping on a new recipe for an iced toasted white chocolate mocha and you guys this is amazing and so perfect for me because this is like a seasonal drink for the holidays and it's getting freaking hot right now so I can like daydream while drinking this (laughs) so if you're like me you love the holidays and you want to have a holiday drink for this summer head over to our website at crimeaddictspodcast.com and you can click on the coffee tab. This week we are shouting out Homemade Cindy, Ayana E. Walani, and Emily Moore underscore. They've liked, commented, rated, shared, reviewed, or donated. So thank you guys so much. We are so grateful for all of the support that you guys have been giving us with this podcast. We love you guys. For your chance to get a shout out on our next episode, please donate, like, follow, rate, review, or share across all social media platforms. You can find us at Crime Addicts Pod on iTunes, Twitter, Facebook, and IG, or at crimeaddictspodcast.com. On our website, you'll find a spot for our addicts where you can submit case recommendations. That is also where you would donate. And if you're an Amazon shopper, you can click on our Amazon link and it will redirect you to the Amazon site or app. Simply add your items to the cart and check out. This process will support our show and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Robert William Picton, also known as Willie, was born on October 24, 1949, in Port Coquitlam, British Columbia. The locals call it Poco. Poco is 27 kilometers or 17 miles east of Vancouver. Willie's parents, Leonard and Louise Picton, were pig farmers. Willie was the middle of three children. His older sister was sent to live with relatives in Vancouver because their parents thought a pig farm was not an appropriate place to raise a lady. Willie and his younger brother David were raised on the farm and put to work at an early age. His father was not involved in raising the children and was abusive towards Willie. His mother, Louise, might have done the best she knew how, but she was eccentric and tough. A workaholic who ran the family meat business, Luis supervised the kids, expecting them to put in long hours slopping pigs and looking after other animals, even on school days. Willie was slow in school. He spent years in special education classes. He didn't date, perhaps because girls shunned him, but also his personal hygiene was horrific. I can only imagine living on a pig farm. Like, for sure, hygiene was probably an issue. And as a female, that's not attractive. No. I'm sorry. Especially in school. You know, like, Mm -hmm. that's kind of hard. I mean, yeah, he he smelled during school, after school. Like, that was just... And went home. Like, Mm -hmm. he didn't notice it, I'm sure. But I'm sure other people did. Yeah, I'm sure. Willie and David's nicknames were Stinky Pigs for that very reason. It's terrible. (laughs) Okay, so even after he grew up, though, he stank of manure, dead animals, dirt. His clothes were never clean. 
He had an enormous fear for showers, which he claimed was because his mother had always insisted that he take baths. So he was scared? But he... Of a shower? Like, coming from above you? Right. Oh. But, like, also, Mom... (laughs) Like, uh, I feel bad, but, like... It's not working, though. (laughs) What are you doing? Yeah. It's terrible. Oh, my gosh. I do want to note that, I mean, as terrible as this sounds as far as, like, an upbringing goes, because it's not something that you or I would welcome, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I also don't... I mean, we're going to get into some to a couple more things and I don't necessarily want to come across as that I feel sorry for him so I'm just putting that out there (laughs) but I just have to paint a picture for you on the background you know Mm -hmm. on like what he came from and how he got to who he is today you know what I mean which helps a lot right definitely but I'm just prefacing this with that I do not feel sorry for this man in any way (laughs) shape or form okay (laughs) okay continue so remember these when we come back at nature versus nurture right (laughs) yeah i see i have to tell you otherwise you can't answer my discussion questions (laughs) so okay i'm gonna like i'll tell you a sad story this is sad okay this shouldn't happen to anybody and it sucks that it happened but so okay when he was in his early teens he had used up all of his savings to buy a calf like a cow, right? Like mm-hmm. a baby cow. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, this was like his beloved pet. Okay. So, you know, some people get cats, some people get dogs. He got a cow. That's <laughs> fine. He lives on a farm. He can yeah, do that. Yeah. So um, one day he had come home from school and couldn't find it. And so his mom was like, oh, we'll go check the barn. And so when he went back there, he found that the cow had been slaughtered. So I could understand how that's really sad. It's not an excuse, but it's really sad. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I would feel really sad if my beloved pet and something that I spent all of my savings on. I would have been on, mad. Yeah, yeah. as like a teen. You know, yeah. you don't have very many funds. Heck yeah. This is like, this was something that I purchased. Yeah. It's really Why sad. Why are you killing it for food? Mm-hmm. But that's. <laughs> but mom- that's what they did. And that's his mama bear. So. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean. <laughs> He probably had, like, PTSD, like, never wanted to leave the house again. But he did end up dropping out of school um, in 1963. Uh, He was only 14. And he actually acquired a position in a butcher's shop as an apprentice. But in 1970, he left the apprenticeship to begin working full-time at his family's pig farm. So as traumatizing as his upbringing may have been, it couldn't have been too bad, considering he went back for Mm -hmm. it, you know? Mm -hmm. Then his father died in 1978, which... There was no love lost there, really. Um, And his mother died the following year, which he and his mother were a lot closer. So that was probably a lot more difficult for him. But they did leave the farm to the three kids. Okay, so there's a couple legends to this farm. So number one, at one point during Willie's childhood, when he wanted to hide from people, it's said that he would crawl into the gutted carcasses of large pigs. Oh, my gosh yeah can you imagine disgusting i'm like pretty queasy so i can't say that i would even want to see that in person let alone crawl into one like that makes me want to vomit a little bit Mm. but uh yeah that's what that's how people like described him and you know that's one of the legends supposedly then um there was also a story of when his younger brother david was 16 and he was learning to drive So, on the evening of October 16th, 1967, David had recently acquired his driver's license and took his father's 1960 red truck from the farm and headed east around, it was like 740-ish at night, you know, so like it's getting dark or dark 
um, and he took it for a joyride. So ahead of him, on the right side of the road, so his side, right, one of the neighborhood kids who was only 14 years old, his name was Tim Barrett, he was walking down the road. And how this happened exactly, like, we really can't say for sure, but somehow David slammed right into Tim. Oh, my gosh. So knowing that Tim was hurt, David raced home and told his mom because he knew that she would know what to do, right? Like you're a kid, obviously Mm -hmm. you rely on your parents. So check this out. Guess what Louise did? She stopped what she was doing and hurried over to where Tim was lying on the ground. And I don't know if this was like maybe right down the road from their house. So maybe David didn't drive maybe he ran home on foot and so then Mm -hmm. she ran on foot back or i don't know maybe he turned the car around and raced home to get his mom and then they raced back in the car i'm not really sure whether they walked or drove but to and from the scene but so they get back and Luis like did like a quick assessment of tim and shoved him over the edge of the deep slow that ran along the side of the road and just pushed him in what so then after that she just went home Yeah, she just did an assessment, realized the shape that he was in, and saw that he wasn't dead, and just pushed him over the edge. And then she went home, and David, like, he's scared shitless, right? He took his truck to the mechanic, and he, this mechanic had handled all of Picton's, when you have a farm, you have, you know, all sorts of vehicles Mm -hmm. and stuff operating things. So there was one guy that was kind of their mechanic and had handled all of their vehicles. So he asked for him to bang out a dent in the front hood and replace a broken turn signal. And then he even asked him to repaint the truck with the same red paint that they had used on the truck before. And this was house paint. It wasn't, what the heck? <laughs> wasn't even anything special. But the mechanic did repair the dent and the turn signal, but he refused to do the painting, which <laughs> is smart, right? Like, that's... <laughs> that's just weird. Yeah, it was weird. But, okay, so in the meantime... While all this is going on and they're trying to, you know, hurry up and get the truck fixed, Tim's parents were, as you can imagine, frantically calling everyone and looking for him. And about 1 a.m. of that same evening, you know, so he got pushed over the edge around, I would assume, about 8 o'clock at night, right? Mm-hmm. So 1 a.m. comes and his Tim's father went to the police station to report him missing. Um, and the next morning, his father, Tim's father and a neighbor were like running around trying to find him, doing everything that they could, you know, trying to call for him, call the neighbors, do whatever they could to locate him. And that neighbor that was with Tim's father actually spotted one of Tim's shoes on the side of the road. So then, of course, you know, they peer over the edge and they end up seeing Tim's body eventually. And he was at the bottom of the slowdown in the water. So, of course, the police were called and they arrived right away. They pulled the body out of the murky water and he was deceased at this time. So an autopsy was conducted and it showed that the cause of death was drowning. So not the injuries that he had suffered from when the truck hit him. Wow. Even though they were significant, like he had suffered a fractured skull with a subcranial hemorrhage and a fractured dislocated pelvis and you know, terrible thing, I'm sure, road rash, you know, all that kind of stuff. But the pathologist who did the autopsy stated that these injuries would not have killed him. Like, he could have survived that. So in March of 1968, a coroner's jury listened to the evidence of several people, including neighbors, the mechanic who fixed the truck, and the police who investigated the case. 
the verdict was accidental death. Excuse me? Yep. But at the same time, as the coroners informed the five-man jury, a criminal investigation was underway because of them telling them that, right? Mm -hmm. So David did not get off scot-free. He was sent to a juvenile court. And because he was in juvenile court, that record is now sealed and we don't have access to it. So I don't know exactly what his punishment was, but he did have to go face a juvenile court where I'm sure he did have some sort of punishment, Mm -hmm. uh, even if it was, you know, as small, something as small as community service, or it could Mm -hmm. have been, you know, that he had to serve a little bit of time in juvie or something like that. But the fucked up part of this is that Luis was never charged. So just... I'm just telling you this legend that, like, you know, legend has it that this all happened because it paints, like, a really good picture of who Luis was and her character. It paints a picture of the influence that the boys had during their childhood, right? Which was just straight cold. Like, she's just heartless. How did she not have anything charged against her? She was the reason. If literally, if he... If the coroner is stating that that boy could have lived through those injuries... Mm -hmm. So then the reason that he died was because she pushed him over the leg. I think when like, they went to court, they didn't know the full story. All they knew is that the boy was found and he had drowned. This makes me infuriated. Yeah. This isn't even the case, dude. Yeah. This is just his backstory. I know. Can you believe this? Okay. I know. I don't think that they knew that she pushed him over the edge, but then later that was discovered. Mm-hmm. But then still, because they had like resolved but the like, case. But like as a mother, okay, as a mother, if you had any part to do with it, even if you didn't, wouldn't you try to come out and say something to try to protect your son? Right, well... Instead of keeping your mouth shut and let your son go to juvie? Right. Mm-hmm. With no, like, not even trying. Well, there's that, too. She's probably thinking, well, he started it, so... Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I'm telling you, like, she was... She r- wore the pants in the family, and she ran that farm, and she ran those boys into the ground. I mean, they... I picture... I'm, I'm picturing images in my head right now, and I do not like that woman. I know. Can you can you imagine like not only that being your upbringing, but also like having that as your influence, and then you have to grow up to be somebody normal. Yeah. Or, I mean, whatever That's normal hard, is, dude. but it's not that. Not I'll tell that. you that. Man. So, before we continue on with the farm and move forward with this story, I want to paint you another picture of what it was kind of like and like what was going on um, around the area, but like outside of the farm. Okay. Vancouver's downtown east side is Canada's poorest postal code. So these blocks littered with bloodstains, crack vials, and dirty condoms. And this is often called, quote, low track or skid row. They hold Canada's highest concentration of prostitution, drug addiction, homelessness, and mental illness. In the shadow of the mountains and under broad daylight, addicts poke needles into their arms searching for good veins. Dealers oversee them as they scratch sidewalks looking for crumbs of drugs. And prostitutes sell their bodies for $10, $15, $20, enough to feed drug habits, basically. Then return to these streets for more. On these corners, sexual predators thrived. And this is where the story of Vancouver's missing woman begins. Each day, prostitutes are beaten, raped, robbed, tied up, held down, doused, and burned. Some men slam car doors on their legs. One man tried to cram a ball down a prostitute's throat. Another took women to hotels and forced them to drink until they poisoned themselves. That's a horrible place to be, but it does paint a good picture of, like, this is where he lives. You know what yes. I mean? Like, yeah. I mean, that's crazy. 
this is you guys are getting so much information and we are like literally painting a picture for you right okay so now that we know what's going on in the world outside let's continue on with the farm so we're at the point in the story where the Picton siblings parents have passed so they left the farm to them Mm. and basically as time went on the brothers began to just neglect the site's farming operations David registered a nonprofit charity. It was called the Piggy Palace Good Times Society. <laughs> and this was with the Canadian government in 1996, claiming to, quote, organize, coordinate, manage, and operate special events, functions, dances, shows, and exhibitions on behalf of service organizations, sports organizations, and other worthy groups, end quote. Its events included raves and wild parties featuring Vancouver sex workers and gatherings in a converted slaughterhouse on the farm. These events attracted as many as 2,000 people. Members of the Hells Angels were known to frequent the farm, too. What the heck? Yeah, they just pulled everybody in. But in knowing what was going on in the outside of the world, obviously, we were talking about those prostitutes Mm -hmm. and the people, you know, that were addicted to drugs living on the street. Yeah. They were, of course, drawn to this place where they could get all of that and what they needed you know and and there were plenty of people partying and all jacked up you know i'm sure willing to pay for prostitution and all that kind of stuff so they were you know, they were showing up at this farm and they were thinking that they were thriving there you know this is good business at piggy's palace yes at piggy's know. palace <laughs> excuse me <laughs> and i actually have a quote from one of them her name is jamie lee hamilton She said, quote, that farm was the dredges of the earth. It was a hellhole. You can say to someone, don't go. But if they are an addict, the addiction overcomes the senses. Police had known about the farm for quite some time, but nothing changed. Of course, Hamilton had worked the streets for many years, and she knew of this farm and the reputation that it that it carried neighbors described willie as slow but not retarded a man who never drank alcohol or smoked cigarettes some say he was nice they say the picton's parties were for charity and his employees relatives say that many women never returned from them and that they told police but they were ignored i mean this is their own relatives turning them in and still nobody would listen according to local records Their parents bought the pig farm in 1963 for 18,000 Canadian dollars. In 1979, by the time the children had inherited the farm, so it's been, you know, 15 or 16 years, it was assessed at more than 7 million Canadian dollars. Holy cow. Parts of it was even sold to a developer, the city, and the school district. That freaks me out that there was a school that close, but luckily he wasn't a child predator. We're going to find that out soon. Once the farm got left to these children, I mean, they were immediately wealthy because of the amount of equity that this farm had accrued over the years. Yeah. David managed the farm and Willie worked in his slaughterhouse. Um, And by this time, Linda, their sister, had gone off to school and was married and lived elsewhere. She wasn't involved in the farm at all. Thank goodness. (laughs) Yeah, right? I mean, maybe not. (laughs) If she was there, maybe none of this would have happened. Oh, that's kind of true. So in 1997, Wendy Lynn Eistetter told police she had escaped from the pig farm. She said she had gone there for drugs and booze, 
but Willie tried to handcuff her, so she stabbed him with a kitchen knife. He stabbed her back, she told police, but she got away. Willie sought treatment at Eagle Ridge Hospital, while Wendy Lee recovered at the nearest emergency room. On March 23, 1997, Willie was charged with the attempted murder of Wendy Lynn Eistetter. He was released on 2000 Canadian dollars for a bond. The charge was dismissed in January of 1998. Wendy was described in media reports as a, quote, drug-addicted prostitute, end quote, and not considered a credible witness. Months later, the Pictons were sued by POCO officials for violating zoning ordinances, neglecting the agriculture for which it had been zoned, and having, quote, altered a large farm building on the land for purpose of holding dances, concerts, and other recreations, end quote. The Pictons ignored the legal pressure and held a 1998 New Year's Eve party, after which they were faced with an injunction banning future parties. The police were authorized to arrest and remove any person attending future events at the farm. The society's nonprofit status was removed the following year for inability to produce financial statements. It was subsequently disbanded. The stabbing had confirmed farm worker Bill Hiscock's suspicion about Willie, whom he called, quote, quite a strange character. Aside from the assault, Hiscox told police there were, quote, all the girls that are going missing and all the purses and IDs that are out there in his trailer and stuff, end quote. Hiscox continued to tell detectives, quote, Willie frequents the downtown area all the time for girls. He also was noted calling the farm a creepy-looking place and described Willie as a pretty quiet guy who had occasional bizarre behavior despite no evidence of substance abuse. Police recorded Hiscox's statement and detectives accompanied him to the pig farm, afterwards vowing, quote, to push the higher-ups all the way to the top to investigate. Subsequent press reports indicate that the farm was searched three times apparently without result. The brothers would remain on file, persons of interest, to the inquiry, but no surveillance would be mounted on the farm. The number of missing women spiked from 1998 to 2002, according to a report by the Canadian Association of Sexual Assault Centers, which is an activist group concerned about how the stigma of prostitution allowed so many women to go missing without investigation. Quote, more than 30 women disappeared since police first investigated Picton as a suspect in 1997. End quote. Streetwalkers are by nature an elusive breed. Many begin as adolescent runaways and never lose the habit of evasion, changing names and addresses, so often that investigators have no realistic hope of tracking a specific prostitute for any length of time. When hookers vanish, as opposed to being slain and left in garbage dumpsters or motel rooms, in canals, and vacant lots, no one can say with any certainty if they have disappeared by choice or through foul play. Too often, no one cares, but we do. Let's take a look at the missing women who, spoiler alert, would ultimately become victims in our case this week. No pattern was discernible in the early cases, and I'm going to go through a lot of names and dates and ages here, so hang with me. First, we have Rebecca Gunno. She's 23, and she was last seen alive on June 22, 1983. She had been reporting three days later. Most of downtown Eastside's vanished women were not so promptly missed. 
The next official victim was 43-year-old Sherry Rail, who would not be reported missing until three years after her January 1984 disappearance. 33-year-old Elaine Auerbach told friends she was moving to Seattle in March of 1986, but she never arrived and was reported missing in mid-April. Teresa Ann Williams, a 26-year-old aboriginal, was last seen alive in July of 1988. She was reported missing in March of 1989. 14 months elapsed between the August 1989 disappearance of 40-year-old mental patient Ingrid Soet and the report to police on October 1st of 1990. The first black victim, Kathleen Watley, was 39 years old when she vanished in June of 1992 and was reported missing on the 29th of that month. The unknown predators took a three-year vacation before claiming 47-year-old Catherine Gonzalez on March of 1995. Her disappearance was reported to authorities on February 9th of 1996. That year's second victim in April was 32-year-old Catherine Knight. She had been missing for seven months before police received the report on November 11th. Dorothy Spence, a 36-year-old aboriginal, vanished four months after Knight in August of 1995, but her disappearance was reported earlier, on October 30th. The year's last victim was 23-year-old Diana Melnick, who went missing in December and was reported missing four days after Christmas. Again, the hunt was stalled. This time, until October of 1996, when a 24-year-old, Tanya Hollick, disappeared. She was reported on November 3rd. Olivia Williams rated less concern at age 22. Her December 1996 disappearance was ignored until July 4th of 1997. Stephanie Lane, the youngest victim so far at age 20, was hospitalized for an episode of drug psychosis on March 10th of 1997. She was released the following day and was last seen alive at the Patricia Hotel on Hastings Street. Janet Henry survived a near miss with serial killer Clifford Olson in the 1980s. She was drugged but spared by Olson for reasons unknown, yet she would end up in low track a decade later and met another predator. Janet Henry was reported missing on June 28, 1997. This was two days after her last contact with relatives. August of 1997 was the most lethal month to date. Three women lost, although police would not learn of those cases for more than a year. Marnie Frey, age 25, was not reported missing until September 4th of 1998. 19 days later, on September 23rd, the first missing person report was filed on 32-year-old Helen Hallmark. Jacqueline Murdoch, 28, was not reported missing until October 3rd of 1998. Detectives still have no idea exactly when or where the woman vanished. The next official victim was 33-year-old Cindy Beck. She dropped out of sight in September of 1997, but her disappearance was reported on April 30th of 1998, four months before the first of August's missing woman. Andrea Borhaven's friends recall that she never had an address and just bounced off the walls. She vanished sometime during 1997, they believe, but no one bothered to inform the police until May 18th of 1999. 39-year-old Carrie Kosky was popular, by contrast. 
She disappeared in January of 1998 and was reported missing on the 29th of that month. Four more women would vanish before Vancouver police took an interest in the case. This was Jacqueline McDonald, 23. She disappeared in mid-January of 1998 and was officially reported missing on February 22, 1999. Next is Inga Hall. She was age 46 or 47 and was last seen in February of 1993. Her disappearance was logged with remarkable swiftness on March 3rd. 29-year-old Sarah Jane DeVries was last seen alive on April 14, 1998, but she was reported missing by friends that same day. She left behind a diary filled with observations on a stunted life, including this, quote, I think my hate is going to be my destination, my executioner, end quote. Lastly, Sheila Egan, a prostitute since she was 15 years old, vanished at age 20 in July of 1998, but it wasn't reported until August 5th. As that lethal summer came to an end, detectives in Vancouver were about to have a nightmare thrust upon them. It continues to the present day, and only time will tell if it will ever be resolved. Constable Dave Dixon of the Vancouver Police Department says people on the streets may have suspected the farm, but there were no reports to police. Quote, no one was coming forward. Some people were going out there with no problem, he said in a recent interview. It wasn't until the woman's relatives and Eastside organizations started holding rallies and demanded that police investigate that the department created a task force and posted a reward. A tip came in that there were unregistered guns on the Picton farm, and on February 5, 2002, police executed a search warrant for illegal firearms on the property. Robert and David Picton were arrested and police obtained a second warrant using what they had seen at the property to search the farm as part of the British Columbia missing woman investigation. Personal items belonging to missing women were found at the farm, which were sealed off by members of the joint RCMP Vancouver Police Department task force. The following day, Picton was charged with weapons offense. Both of the Pictons were later released. However, Robert Picton, is Willie, was kept under police surveillance. On February 13, 2002, nine days before Picton was slapped with his first murder charge, spokesmen for Prostitution Alternative Counseling Education claimed that 110 streetwalkers from British Columbia's lower mainland had been slain or kidnapped in the past two decades. Computer data obtained from the Royal Canadian Mounted Police placed the number even higher, 144 prostitutes murdered or missing with foul play suspected over the province at large. On February 22, 2002, Willie was arrested and charged with two counts of first-degree murder in the deaths of Serena Abbotsway and Mona Wilson. On April 2nd, three more charges were added for the murders of Jacqueline McDonnell, Diane Rock, and Heather Bottomley. A sixth charge for the murder of Andrea Josbury was laid on April 9th, following shortly by a seventh for Brenda Wolf. After Willie was arrested, many people started coming forward and talking to the police about what had taken place at the farm. One of the witnesses that came forward was Lynn Ellingson. She claimed to have seen Willie skinning a woman hanging from a meat hook years earlier and that she did not tell anyone about it with fear of losing her own life. Additionally, Lynn Ellingson admitted that she blackmailed Willie 
about the incident on more than one occasion. On June 6, 2002, the police began evacuating the picked-in properties with help of archaeologists, and these excavations continued at the farm through November of 2003. The cost of the investigation is estimated to have been like 70 million Canadian dollars by the end of 2003. That's so much. It's ridiculous. So that amount was placed according to their government. As of 2015, the property is fenced off under lien by the Crown prosecution in right of British Columbia. In the meantime, all the buildings on the property, except a small barn, had been demolished. Forensic analysis proved difficult because the bodies may have been left to decompose or be eaten by insects and pigs on the farm. During the early days of the evacuations, forensic anthropologists brought in heavy equipment, including two 50-foot flat conveyor belts and soil sifters to find traces of human remains. On March 10, 2004, the government revealed that Willie may have ground up human flesh and mixed it with pork that he sold to the public. The Provenance's Health Authority later issued a warning. Can you freaking believe that? Like, uh, I am, like, I disgusted. Would, yeah, I would be really freaked out if I were a local there. So there was another claim that was made that he fed the bodies directly to his pigs. Also gross. Disgusting. On September 20th, 2002, four more charges were added for the slings of Georgina Pappen, Patricia Johnson, Helen Harmark, and Jennifer Firminger. Four more charges for the murders of Heather Chinock, Tanya Hollick, Sherry Irving, and Igna Hall were laid on October 3rd bringing the total to 15. This was the largest investigation of any serial killer in Canadian history. I would say in almost all history, right? Like, that's crazy. That's, that's a, a lot. lot. That's a lot. Of, well, especially because you have to think about, like, the excavation and all of yeah. that stuff. Like, yes, they only have one small property, or not small, but, like, one place to search. It's not the whole world, right? Like, it's one mm -hmm. farm. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, the depths and destruction that they had to go through to discover the truth is extensive. On January 13th, 2003, the preliminary hearing began in provincial court in Poco. The following testimony from which was covered by a publication ban until 2010. At the inquiry, the fact was revealed that Willie had been charged with attempted murder in connection with the stabbing of prostitute Wendy Lynn Eistetter in 1997. I know we already went over this, but let's talk about her testimony. So she testified at the inquiry that after Willie had driven her to the pig farm and had sex with her, he slapped a handcuff on her left hand and stabbed her in the abdomen. She stabbed Willie in self-defense. Later, both she and Willie were treated at the same hospital where staff used a key they found in Picton's pocket to remove the handcuffs from Wendy's wrist. Okay, and of course we know this, but this was all brought up in the preliminary hearing. It, the attempted murder charge against Willie was stayed on January 27th, 1998, because Wendy had a drug addiction and the prosecutors believed that she would be too unstable for her testimony to help secure a conviction. This is the crazy part that was revealed during the preliminary hearing. 
So the clothes and the rubber boots that Willie had been wearing on that evening were seized by police and left in an RCMP storage locker for more than seven years. Not until 2004 did lab testing show that the DNA of two women, which was Andrea Borhaven and Kara Ellis, was on the item seized from Willie in 1997. In 1998, according to a Vancouver police detective, Constable Lormier Shinher, he learned of a call that was made to police tip line that stated that Willie should have been investigated in the case of the women's disappearances. According to Shenher's account, described at length in his 2015 book about the case, he struggled to attract sufficient police resources and attention to the case until the 2002 search of the Pictons farm by the RCMP. In 1999, Canadian police had received a tip that Willie had a freezer filled with human flesh on his farm. Although they interviewed Willie, he denied killing the missing women and obtained his consent to search his farm, but the police didn't conduct a search at the time. On July 23, 2003, Judge David Stone committed Willie for trial on 15 counts of first-degree murder. On May 26, 2005... 12 more charges were laid against Willie for the killings of Kara Ellis, Andrea Borhaven, Deborah Lynn Jones, Marnie Frey, Tiffany Drew, Carrie Koski, Sarah DeVries, Cynthia Felix, Angela Jardine, Wendy Crawford, Diane Melnick, and Jane Doe, bringing the total number of first-degree murder charges to 27. In June 2005, pre-trial hearings began in British Columbia Supreme Court in New Westminster and a publication ban was put in place. These pre-trial hearings concluded in October of 2005. Willie's trial began on January 30th, 2006 in New Westminster. Willie pled not guilty to 27 charges of first-degree murder in the Supreme Court of British Columbia. The Vore Dyer phase of trial took most of the year to determine what evidence might be admitted before the jury. Reporters were not allowed to disclose any of the material presented in the arguments. In March 2006, Willie refused to enter a plea on the charge involving this victim known in the proceedings as Jane Doe, so the court registered a not guilty plea on his behalf. So that's the thing, you can just refuse to enter a plea? (laughs) like why is he above everybody else you have to enter a plea you don't get to just not enter one right so they just pick not guilty for him it's insane (laughs) um so uh the judge who was justice james williams stated quote the count as drawn fails to meet the minimal requirement set out in section 581 of the criminal code accordingly it must be quashed So basically, of all the victims, there was one that was a Jane Doe. They couldn't identify it. Willie refused to put in a plea. They gave him a not guilty plea to make sure that, you know, all of his civil rights were being met. And he had the opportunity of a trial for that one particular charge, right? And then the judge reviewed it and said, well, it hasn't really met the minimum requirements. So we're actually just going to go ahead and get rid of that one count. Wow. Then the judge also decided in August of 2006 to separate or sever the charges to prevent unreasonable burden to a jury. 
So the crown, who that's what we'll, we will be calling them because in Canada, for all of our Canadian listeners, um, the crown is what we consider the prosecution in the United States. Okay. So the crown, or for us, you know, we might say the state or the prosecution. Mm-hmm. For them, mm-hmm. it's the crown. Mm, um, same thing. so nice. Yeah, I know. I like it. We should adopt that here. I know. <laughs> so the crown initially proceeded on six counts because... The reason for these six in particular was because they were materialistically different than the other cases. And then the other 20 counts were supposed to follow at a later date. And we'll get into that. So they separated the charges. And one thing that they meant that the judge mentioned was that it was probably a good idea because, first of all, you have a higher chance of a mistrial, right? And if you mistrial on all of those 27 counts, then he gets off scot-free, right? So that's Mm -hmm. one thing. But another thing to that um, that he noted is that that trial itself, I mean, we see trials that, you know, can take a couple weeks or a couple months. Like that could take up to a couple of years because the number of victims that they had and the number of counts that they had and the amount of proof and witnesses and all that kind of stuff that they would have had. And so I think the prosecution said at one point that they would have had 240 witnesses to come forward for all of those charges. So they said, well, think about being on that jury. Right, so you have a Never life. Ending. Yeah, yeah, you have a life outside of this. Like you just can't go to work. Put him, I mean, no, not just put them because every single victim deserves, you know, to have. Yeah, be be acknowledged. Right. You know? So that's why the judge was like, "We're gonna sever these," um, and that would later come up as an issue, but we'll get there. But basically, that was kind of his reasoning behind it. So during the trial's first day of jury evidence, the Crown stated that Willie had confessed to 49 murders to an undercover agent from the Office of Inspector General who was posing as his cellmate. He was undercover there. And the Crown reported that Willie told the officer that he wanted to kill another woman to make it an even 50 and that he was caught because he was, quote, sloppy. Wow. I mean, I would say he was sloppy on a lot of things. <laughs> oh, nasty. I mean, he is, can you imagine, like, no hygiene? Ugh, ugh. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. Just nasty. Right. So why would that not continue over? I mean, mm-hmm. you didn't, weren't taking care of your farm, you weren't taking care of yourself. Why would you take care of these victims? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. he's terrible. Okay, so by January 22nd of 2007, the Crown closed their case against Willie on six counts of first-degree murder after calling 98 witnesses. Jeez. The defense closed their case after calling only 30 witnesses. I say only. (laughs) Right. Um, But, I mean, that gives you kind of a grasp on how huge this case was. And it was only for six of those charges. So it doesn't even include the remaining 20 counts. The date of the jury trial of the first six counts was initially set to start on January 8th, 2007, but was later postponed to January 22nd. The media ban was lifted, and for the first time, Canadians heard the details of what was found during the long investigation. And this is a little gruesome, so hang with us here. Skulls cut in half with hands and feet stuffed inside. The remains of one victim found stuffed in a garbage bag, and her blood-stained clothes found in Willie's trailer. Part of another victim's jawbone and teeth found beside Willie's slaughterhouse and a 22 caliber revolver with an attached dildo containing both his and the victim's DNA. In a videotaped recording played for the jury, Willie claimed to have attached the dildo to the weapon as a makeshift silencer. 
during Willie's trial, lab staff testified that about 80 unidentified DNA profiles, roughly half of them being male and half of them being female, have been detected on evidence. The items police found inside Willie's trailer was a loaded 22 revolver with a dildo over the barrel and one round fired, boxes of 357 Magnum handgun ammunition, night vision goggles, two pairs of faux fur-lined handcuffs, a syringe with three milliliters of blue liquid inside, and Spanish fly, which is an aphrodisiac. They also found a videotape of Willie's friend, Scott Chubb, saying Willie had told him a good way to kill a female heroin addict was to inject her with windshield washer fluid. A second tape was played for Willie in which an associate named Andrew Bellwood said Willie mentioned killing sex workers by handcuffing and strangling them, then bleeding and gutting them before feeding them to pigs. Photos of the contents of a garbage can found at Willie's slaughterhouse, which held some remains of Mona Wilson. In October 2007, a juror was accused of having made up her mind already that Picton was innocent. The trial judge questioned the juror, saying, quote, It's reported to me, you said from what you had seen, you were certain Mr. Picton was innocent. There was no way he could have done this, that the court system had arrested the wrong guy. End quote. The juror denied this completely. Justice Williams ruled that she could remain on the jury since it had not been proven she made the statements. With the amount of appeals that we've gone over so far throughout this podcast, when I see things like that, it's like screaming at me, like red alert, fire alert. Like, you right. know what I mean? Like, you heard that red somewhere? Flag. Like, I thought that when you're on a jury, it is very meticulous. Right. Like, right. and if that is said by somebody, like, I'm sorry, you're gone. We need to get somebody else, you know? Like, right. And, he, but I mean, it, he was. Basically, like, from what you were saying, like, okay, well, we couldn't prove that she said it, so she can stay. And so maybe that's the right thing to do. Maybe it's not, but it just goes off in my head, like, this is going to be used in an appeal later, or it yeah. could be. Yeah, we don't know, exactly, you know? exactly. But it's kind of crazy. So Justice James Williams suspended jury deliberations on December 6, 2007, after he discovered an error in his charge to the jury. Earlier in the day, the jury had submitted a written question to Justice James requesting clarification on his charge, asking, quote, Are we able to say yes, i.e. find Picton guilty, if we infer the accused acted indirectly, question mark, end quote. On December 9, 2007, the jury returned a verdict that Willie is not guilty on six counts of first-degree murder, but is guilty on six counts of second-degree murder. A second-degree murder conviction carries a punishment of a life sentence with no possibility of parole for a period between 10 to 25 years to be set by the trial judge. So on December 11, 2007, after reading 18 victim impact statements, British Columbia Supreme Court Judge Justice James Williams Sentence Willie to life with no possibility of parole for 25 years, the maximum punishment for second-degree murder, and equal to the sentence which would have been imposed for a first-degree murder conviction. So he was quoted saying, quote, Mr. Picton's conduct was murderous and repeatedly so. I cannot know the details, but I know this. What happens to them, the victims, was senseless and despicable. Speaking of appeals, the British Columbia Court of Appeal rendered judgment in June of 2009 on two appeals. But this is something new. One was brought by the Crown, 
and the other was brought by the defense. So that's not normal to hear the prosecution appeal a conviction that they received. Mm-hmm. But let's go through this. They had they had reasoning, which is why I said it would come up. So on January 7th, 2008, the attorney general filed an appeal in the British Columbia Court of Appeal against Willie's acquittals on the first degree murder charges. The grounds of appeal relate to a number of evidentiary rulings made by the trial judge, certain aspects of the trial judge's jury instructions, and the ruling to sever the six charges Willie was tried on from the remaining 20. Some relatives of the victims in the case were taken aback by the announcement of a Crown Appeal, especially because Attorney General Wally Appal had said a few days earlier that the prosecution would likely not appeal. Although Willie had been acquitted on the first-degree murder charges, he was convicted of second-degree murder and received the same sentence as he would have on the first-degree murder convictions. The relatives of the victims expressed concern that the convictions would be jeopardized if the Crown argued that the trial judge had made errors. Opposition critic Leonard Krog criticized the Attorney General for not having briefed the victims' families in advance. Attorney General Appal apologized to the victims' families for not informing them of the appeal before it was announced to the general public. Attorney General Appal also said that the appeal was filed largely for strategic reasons in anticipation of an appeal by the defense. The prosecution's rationale was that if Willie appeals his convictions and if the appeal is allowed, resulting in a new trial, the prosecution will want to hold that the new trial on the original 26 charges of first-degree murder. But the Crown would be precluded from doing so unless it had successfully appealed the original acquittals on the first-degree murder charges and the severance of the 26 counts into one group of six and one group of 20. Under the applicable rules of court, the time period for the Crown to appeal expired 30 days after December 9th when the verdicts were rendered, while the time period for the defense to appeal expired 30 days after December 11th, so a two-day gap, when Willie was sentenced. That is why the Crown announced the appeal first, even though the Crown appeal is intended to be conditional on an appeal by the defense. If the defense had not filed an appeal, then the Crown could have withdrawn their appeal. Okay, so now let's get into the defense's appeal. On January 9th of 2008, lawyers for Willie filed a notice of appeal to the British Columbia Court of Appeal seeking a new trial on six counts of second-degree murder. The lawyer representing Willie on the appeal was Gil McKinnon, who had been a Crown prosecutor in the 1970s. The notice of appeal enumerated various areas in which the defense alleged that the trial judge erred. The main charge for the jury, the response to the jurors' questions, amending the jury charge, similar fact evidence, and Willie's statements to the police. The British Columbia Court of Appeals issued its decisions on June 25, 2009, but some parts of the decisions were not publicly released because of publication bans were still in effect. The Court of Appeals dismissed the defense, appealed by a two-to-one majority. Due to a dissent on a point of law, Willie was entitled to appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada without first seeking leave to appeal. This notice of appeal was filed in the Supreme Court of Canada on August 24, 2009. The Court of Appeal allowed the Crown Appeal, finding that the trial judge erred in excluding some evidence and in severing the 26 counts into one group of 20 counts and one group of six. 
The order resulted from his findings who stayed so that the conviction on the six counts of second-degree murder would not be set aside. On June 26, 2009, Willie's lawyers confirmed that they would exercise his right to appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada. The appeal was based on the dissent of the British Columbia Court of Appeal. While Willie had an automatic right to appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada based on the legal issues in which Justice Donald had dissented, Willie's lawyers applied to the Supreme Court of Canada for leave to appeal on other issues as well. On November 26, 2009, the Supreme Court of Canada granted his application for leave to appeal. The effect of this was to broaden the scope of Willie's appeal, allowing him to raise arguments that had been rejected ununanimously by the British Columbia Court of Appeal. So not just the arguments that had been rejected by the two-to-one majority, but all of them. On July 30th, 2010, the Supreme Court of Canada rendered its decision dismissing Willie's appeal and affirming his convictions. The argument that Willie should be granted a new trial was ununanimously rejected by the justices of the Supreme Court of Canada. Although ununanimous in its result, the Supreme Court split six to three in its legal analysis of the case. The issue was whether the trial judge made a legal error in his instructions to the jury, and in particular in his re-instruction responding to the jury's question about Willie's liability if he was not the only person involved. Writing for the majority, Madam Justice Sharon found that Quote, the trial judge's response to the question posed by the jury did not adversely impact on the fairness of the trial, end quote. She further found that the trial judge's overall instructions with respect to other suspects, quote, compendiously captured the alternative routes to liability that were realistically in issue in this trial. The jury was also correctly instructed that it could convict Mr. Picton if the Crown proved this level of participation coupled with the requisite intent, end quote. Mr. Justice LaBelle, writing for the minority, found that the jury was not properly informed, quote, of the legal principles which would have allowed them as triers of fact to consider evidence of Mr. Picton's aid and encouragement of an unknown shooter as an alternative means of imposing liability for the murders, end quote. However, Justice LaBelle would have applied the so-called curative proviso so as not to overturn Willie's convictions. And just for the record, curative proviso permits an appellate court to uphold a conviction despite error of law committed by the trial judge where the error was not led to a substantial wrong or miscarriage of justice. At a 2010 press conference, Deputy Chief Constable Doug Lepard of the VPD apologized to the victim's family, saying, quote, I wish from the bottom of my heart that we would have caught him sooner. I wish that the several agencies involved that we could have done better in so many ways. I wish that all the mistakes that were made, we could undo. And I wish that more lives would have been saved. So on my behalf and behalf of the Vancouver Police Department and all the men and women that worked on this investigation, I would say to the families how sorry we all are for your losses because we did not catch this monster sooner, end quote. During a court hearing on August 4th, 2010, Judge Williams stated that Willie should be committed to a federal penitentiary because up to that point, he had been held at a provincial pretrial institution. 
In June 2018, he was allegedly transferred from Kent Institution in British Columbia to another penitentiary in Port Cartier, Quebec. So let's talk about what happened to the remaining 20 murder charges. Willie was still facing those charges at this point. On February 26, 2008, a family member of one of the 20 women named as alleged victims told the media that the Crown had told her a trial on the further 20 counts might not proceed. Then on August 4, 2010, the Crown prosecutors stayed the pending murder charges against Picton, ending the prosecution of any further trials. Families of the victims had varied reactions to the announcement. Some were disappointed that Willie would never be convicted of the 20 other murders, while others were relieved that their gruesome details of the murders would not be aired in court. Most, but not all, of the publication bans in this case were lifted by the trial judge. On August 6, 2010, various media outlets released a transcript of conversations between the RCMP undercover operator and Willie in his holding cell. The victim's children filed a civil lawsuit in May of 2013 against the Vancouver Police Department and Royal Canadian Mounted Police and the Crown for failing to protect the victims. They reached a settlement in March of 2014 where each of the children was to be compensated $50,000 Canadian dollars without an admission of liability. I'm going to read you a article that was written by Reuters and posted on December 11, 2007. It is titled, Serial Killing Pig Farmer Gets Life. Canadian serial killer Robert Willie Picton has been sentenced to life in prison with no hope of parole for 25 years. Justice James Williams handed down the harshest sentence possible for the second-degree murder at a hearing in Vancouver. Quote, Mr. Picton, there is really nothing that I can say to adequately express the revulsion the community feels about these killings. End quote. Relatives of the victims erupted in cheers in the courtroom. Picton did not react. Picton, 58, had been convicted for the murders of six women whose bodies were butchered in the slaughterhouse of his pig farm near Vancouver. He is charged with 26 murders and faces another trial on the remaining 20 murder counts. At the gut-wrenching court hearing, the victims' families described their emotional devastation. Quote, Nobody should meet death the way she did. Jay Dreyers, a half-brother of victim Serena Abbotsway, wrote in a statement read to the court, Abbotsway's head, hands, and feet were discovered in a bucket on Picton's farm. Some of the victim's relatives sobbed openly, and even reporters and attorneys fought back tears as the statements were read. Picton sat emotionless in his prisoner's box as the family statements were read. He gazed at his hands that were folded on his lap. Picton leaned forward, as if ready to speak when the judge later asked if he had anything to say, but his lawyer quickly said he would not address the court because he is still facing the 20 additional murder charges. The life sentence was mandatory for a conviction on second-degree murder, so the judge was deciding when would be eligible to apply for parole within a range of 10 to 25 years. Prosecutors had asked for the toughest sentence possible, calling the murders, quote, cold-blooded, end quote, and says Picton had shown no remorse. Canada does not have a death penalty. Picton's victims were drug addicts and prostitutes in the poor downtown east side of Vancouver on Canada's Pacific coast, 
But Prosecutor Michael Petrie said it was important that the public know they were not, quote, disposable people, end quote. Picton lured the woman to his farm in the Vancouver suburb of Port Coquitlam, British Columbia, where he killed them and cut up their bodies to dispose of them. The victim's relatives talked of the brutality of the killings and the pain of hearing their loved ones described in media reports only as sex trade workers and not as women who had families. Quote, Mr. Picton, why did you hurt my real mother and those other women? 15-year-old Brittany Frey, the daughter of Marnie Frey, asked in a statement read by a relative. The defense sought leniency, saying Picton also had a history of kindness. It noted the jury declined to convict him of the more serious charge, first-degree murder, that required prosecutors to prove the killings were planned in advance. But Picton's attorney, Peter Ritchie, also acknowledged it was unlikely whatever sentence he received that a parole board would free a serial killer from prison. The six murder victims were among more than 60 women who disappeared in Vancouver from the late 1980s until late 2001, shortly before Picton's arrest in February of 2002. Okay, when you read the quote that was listed in that article from Marnie Frey's 15-year-old daughter mm-hmm. when she had asked, like, posed the question of why did you hurt my real mother, that put into perspective for me so much about what he being willie Mm -hmm. would have had to endure through that trial like Mm -hmm. i don't know how many of those 98 witnesses that they had called were victims or families or anything you know victim families or anything Mm -hmm. like that but you know there is that time that is set aside for the victims to come up and make statements if they Mm -hmm. choose and i think that would be so hard to endure putting myself into Willie's shoes. So it makes me wonder like what he was feeling at that time when they were, you know, addressing him and stuff. But I just realized with the number of victims that he had and and the number of witnesses that they had and all that Mm -hmm. stuff. And you have to sit there and listen to people like talk against your character. He's obviously not somebody that really gave too many shits about himself considering, Mm -hmm. you know, he smelled all the time. Mm -hmm. He didn't maintain himself. If you look at pictures of him, he's not well-groomed, you know. It just makes me wonder if he even cared if they said anything or if that was really tearing him up inside. They did say that there was parts of him that were kind. Right. So you would think and hope Mm -hmm. that, you know, there was some part of him that that touched maybe. Right, but then like to the undercover officer, he's like, oh, I want to kill one more to round it up to 50. Well, okay, so what you're saying though is like, I feel like, and a lot of times with a lot of cases that we've, you know, researched so far, a lot of times when they attack these, these victims, you know, who are on the streets and stuff, they don't think of them as anything else. Right. That's all that they think of them as. Mm -hmm. So then I think to your point, Mm -hmm. hopefully it made an impact on him knowing that, oh my gosh, like. Mm-hmm. They had families. Mm-hmm. They they were more than just these people on the streets. Mm-hmm. They have kids. They have parents. They have siblings. Yeah. Just like me. Like, mm-hmm. just like him. Like, mm-hmm. he didn't have kids, but he had a sister. Mm-hmm. He had a mom. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it, it's so much more than just, like, what they had in their head. Mm-hmm. So, hopefully, that was an eye-opener for him. Right. You know, and, I mean, he's sense. been in custody for a good amount of time now. Still is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I would hope that something's, you know, hitting home at this point. But... It's hard to say, man. Like, obviously, he was able to come to terms with doing it in the very first place. So maybe mm-hmm. not. I mean, we'll never know. Yeah. Or maybe we will someday. But we don't know now. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I have a few notes here, um, actually, that kind of go towards this as well. There was a gentleman in 2006 by the name of Thomas Lotomy. He was out of Fremont, California, and he allegedly wrote letters to Willie, and he posed himself in these letters as a woman who was basically like, you know, in a rough part in her life and kind of similar to what mm-hmm. his victims were, right? Mm-hmm. And a copy of the letters that were initially sent to Willie were not kept by Thomas and they were never recovered. So who mm-hmm. knows what was actually said in those. Mm-hmm. But Willie allegedly responded to them. And of course, he was maintaining his innocence the whole time, saying that he didn't do this. Now, just again, nobody has ever officially confirmed the validity of the letters. There was a media outlet that went to extreme lengths to try to confirm that this letter that they had received back was valid. I think they were able to determine that when it gets sent out of the prison, there's like a code that gets stamped on it. And that Mm -hmm. code was the one that would have been stamped had it been sent from that prison Mm. and that kind of stuff. So they believe that it's valid, but it's never been like officially confirmed. Mm -hmm. So I do have to say that it was allegedly. And I mean, nothing ever happened with it as far as the officials taking any action on it or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And... Thomas, he is an aspiring journalist and he has written to inmates on in the past before, sometimes posing as himself, sometimes posing as somebody else. And that's with the intention of being of giving insight to the public on that person that he's writing to. So when he got those letters back, it was supposed to kind of give us some insight as to who Picton was from his own words, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, So we do have that a little bit to go off of. And also in 2016, Willie wrote an autobiography while he was in prison. But what happened with that is, this is ridiculous. So it was snuck out of prison with a former cellmate that he had. And that cellmate passed it along to this construction worker. I don't even know the relation that the construction worker and Willie had or if they knew it was coming or what the heck was going on. But this guy took it, typed it up. And I can just picture some guy with like dirty hands, like, you know, one finger at a time typing this up. I don't know, but he typed it up and he got it published. It's the book is called Picked In in His Own Words. And he put his name on it as if he authored them. But once they found out that Willie actually authored it, it was a big deal. So it set motion into laws being put into place that we see more often now of taking away the privilege for an inmate to earn money off of their memoirs and autobiographies and stuff like that. So laws were getting put into place. Those laws are already set in place in many other providences within Canada. And so they were obviously just trying to pass it in, in this particular one to pass those laws so that he wasn't able to earn money off of his autobiography because that's ridiculous. That's insane. So hopefully that was passed. But um, I also know that they were reaching out to places that, you know, have like high traffic Mm -hmm. volume of people purchasing things off of, such as Amazon, right, with Kindles and stuff like that. They're reaching out to Amazon and asking them to remove it from their selection once they found out that Willie was the one that wrote it so that nobody could make money off of it Mm -hmm. as much as possible. 
Um, and I did actually go look on Amazon to see if I could purchase it and I couldn't find it. There are other books out there. And, you know, we had mentioned that, that there was one written by somebody else involved in the case prior to this, you know, so there are books out there, but I couldn't find that particular one on amazon.com specifically. So that's good. shop our link, but don't buy that book. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> um, so th- those are two kind of things that went alongside that. So we could potentially, I guess, know kind of what he's feeling and, and his side of it, but He's never going to admit to any of it, Mm -hmm. you know, or he hasn't thus far. Mm -hmm. And he has been trying to basically maintain his innocence. And honestly, I'm really not interested in anything that he has to say unless it's, you know, something in the form of an apology towards these victims Mm -hmm. and the truth. Yeah, definitely. Um, Another couple of notes I actually had that I wanted to share is... I wanted to go back really quickly and just make note that David has never been charged with any of these. And That's it's interesting. really interesting because they were both there in the same amount of times. Mm-hmm. Like they they were, it was both of them there the whole time. Mm-hmm. I was, I was pretty shocked to learn that they weren't able to link him to any of them. And I don't know, maybe or David is completely wonder, innocent, but it's really interesting. What if, uh, I always, I, I kind of wonder because they state that Willie is, like, the less smarter of, of the two. You know, like, right. he's stated that he was in special needs classes and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. What if, like, it was all really David, but he was right. able to, like, push it against his well, brother? Well, and what does that sound like? Doesn't that sound exactly like what happened to him when he was a kid and his yes. mother pushed that kid down? Yes. Pushed uh, the kid, Tim, down the slope? Yeah. I mean, it sounds very, very similar to what we've already seen, you know? So it, it makes... Mm-hmm. It's interesting to me because I can't believe, regardless of the amount of land you have, you can have a thousand million acres. If you are there with your brother, living even on in different parts of the land, you are going to know that women are showing up and not leaving. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, no, he... There's no way. Sure not innocent. He's, to me, there's no not. way that David didn't know whether he was actually involved in it or not. I don't know. Like, that's that would be something I would need, yeah. you know, proven beyond a reasonable doubt kind of thing. Like, I would need. And all of this stuff was in the trailer and property where Willie was living. So, I mean, and they didn't find anything in David's quarters and stuff like that. So, I understand that that could be the reason why they couldn't link it to him. But it just is uh, food for thought on that one. Definitely is. So he took the blame from his mother killing that little boy. And now he's passing the blame onto somebody else. Yeah. Mm. So I don't know. I don't know if he's guilty or not. I just wanted to throw that little Mm -hmm. thought out there. Um, And I also have a quote from Willie's sister, uh, just to kind of tie that all together. She said, quote, our name has been tarnished. It has a humbling effect on us. Any good you've ever done in your life has been destroyed. End quote. That was during an interview in 2002. So wow. obviously he hadn't been convicted yet or nothing. And it was kind of in the heat of it. And that was even then. Can right. you imagine now? Right. It's crazy. Yeah. Okay. So I do have a couple of discussion questions for you today. I think we went through like a, quite a lot of really good detail. Mm-hmm. But I just have some follow-up questions. Okay, number one. Do you think that these women were tortured for long periods of time before 
he slaughtered them? Or yes. do you think that it was pretty quick? No. I think yes, because, well, for one, I know from just what I've heard on, you know, throughout my lifetime, a lot of slaughterhouses uh, purposely, like, keep the pigs and everything alive and cows while they slaughter, right? Mm-hmm. Why would they do anything different to actual females? Right. And two, that dildo wasn't just used as a silencer, bet. Right. They went there as prostitutes looking mm-hmm. for drugs. So, of course, they had sexual mm-hmm. intercourse. I'm sure a lot of other things. And then probably all within the same sentence and same breath where they tied up like animals and put to the slaughter. Right. The only thing that, I mean, I think he's like a terrible, terrible person. And so I would like to jump to the conclusion that he probably tortured them for all the reasons that you just said. But the only thing that makes me wonder that is because he, like the survivor, Wendy, right? He put one handcuff on her, pulled her arm out and stabbed her. Like that was so fast. She didn't even know it was coming. You know what I mean? It makes me wonder, like, did he do that to all of them and just the rest of them weren't able to fight their way out? Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's kind of interesting. Like, that does pose a question in my head of, like, what did these women have to go through? And that's what's really hard for me on this case is that we don't know so much. I mean, like, going into my next question, why did he even kill them? Like, why did he kill them? Why did he do any of this? You know what I mean? They were coming to his home for these parties. To party, yeah. It was supposed to be like Why, a good time. They were supposed to be there. I mean, it's not like he had to be like, oh, you know, and somebody he was here. I have to anything. conceal that. And he no. never said anything. Where like in previous, you know, cases that we researched, they're like, oh, he made me mad. Or right. like, oh, um, no. yeah. they didn't pay me or whatever the issue was. Mm-hmm. We don't know. Yeah. It, it but was just... I feel like if anything, I mean, to continue on to your food of thought, maybe that might be another reason as to like, why aren't we looking at the brother? Right. You know, we know Uh, nothing. Right. And I don't know what would be interesting to know, too, is have there still been a lot of women missing, going missing? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, has David continued this? Did it stop? Right. Did it stop or did it not? Well, because isn't the land, like, the land is no longer theirs. So they'd have to... I I did a Google map search of it, and it's just, like, all fenced off. Creepy. Yeah. Probably some stuff. I mean, I don't know when those Google Map pictures were taken. Oh my gosh, it's probably like forever stink in that air. Nasty. But yeah, quite the burden. Kind of, it'd be kind of curious to know, like, if there's still lots of women missing Mm -hmm. from the streets in that area, or in like a different area. Maybe he even left. Yeah. To a different area. Yeah. Like, where is David? Right. Where are you at, bro? You're old now, but where are you at? <laughs> <Where> you at? <laughs> I'm going to actually add that to my discussion questions because we have talked about it quite a lot. You know, yeah. was David involved? And I think it's something to consider. I mean, I'm yeah. not willing to put all of my eggs in one basket no. with that to say yes or no, but I think it's something to consider. And Heck I'm sure yeah, that they did. To, to know about. But we didn't see it. Yeah, the but research. they never... And the investigators never came forward and said you know he did a polygraph examination and he mm-hmm. he's been so cooperative and all this he like never all did the any of that points to willie yeah and yeah. why set up <clears throat> yeah but that's true it's true i mean like you said he was they had indicated that he was mentally handicapped and then mm-hmm. now all of a sudden he's responsible for all these things and he's saying oh no i didn't do any of that yeah 
okay, well, <laughs> I mean, I don't know what his level of mental retardation was, but was he even able, was he capable of doing that? I don't know. Exactly. And okay, <laughs> that's so that's kind of another question that I had in my mind was like, was Willie able to slaughter these animals by himself or did he need the help of David? Because if he needed help of David just to do his normal work, mm-hmm. how would he have been able to do it to these women who are fighting back too mm-hmm. by himself? Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Just a just a question. Just food for thought. I mean, it all they're all very good questions. They're really good questions. So just to circle back to my other question, I mean, why did he kill? I don't... The thrill? I mean, that's really... I don't know. It's hard to say. And, like, the fact that he was talking about still killing, mm-hmm. you know, he was saying that he wanted to kill another one to hit around 50. Uh, it just... It makes the me wonder. The thrill of it, you know, like, the... Yeah. Whatever was going on in his brain. Yeah. Why? How did we get here? <laughs> Okay, and then the next one I have is how many deaths would you attribute to him? I mean, okay, so I I kind of feel like it's almost pretty accurate from what he said, only because of what you just quoted right. of him stating he wants to have one more just to make it an even 50. So he's not saying, like, I had 100. I ha- they really didn't see a lot. Like, mm-hmm. I still have this many more, this many more mm-hmm. they didn't catch. He's, like, acknowledging, yeah, this is how much I did. I want to do one more, so let me do 50. They also indicated that the uh, that the lab had identified about 80 unidentified DNA profiles, about half male, half female. So my number for him is probably what he is claiming, but it makes me wonder, like, how did, how is there an additional 30? You know what I mean? Like, do you go off of the DNA that they found that they don't actually know who it technically belongs to? Or do you go off of his admission to an undercover cop? Or was he just boasting, trying to be like, oh, yeah, but, dude, I killed 49 people. I'm so cool. You know what I mean? And yeah. really, he only killed those 27 that they actually, I mean, what they found was 27. Yeah. They know 27. He admitted to almost 50, and then they found almost 80 profiles. So, so I mean... My, my other thing that could maybe, because they said, like, some were male, some were female, but the only ones that he got prosecuted for were all female. Female. So, those males, I mean, what if... You know, because slaughterhouses are pretty intense, and I know it was, like, a family-run business, but maybe they had distant relatives, or somebody come working on, on the fields here and there that might have died. Right. And maybe they just bury them on property oh, they just like is mom and dad is mar- mom and dad buried on property you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. like we don't really know too much mm-hmm. so we don't know if those are like innocent deaths or like deaths that were just like you know work hazard type of thing right um especially like back True. in back then i'm sure there wasn't as much safety precautions as there True. is now so True. i could imagine how many like deaths or injuries or like freaking fingers were flying around in that, right. in that area right that's true. so that's maybe true. you know that can be put into play a little bit on that so we're gonna we're probably gonna just stick with his number around 49 ish then it's probably a good number then okay so i have two more how would you feel if one of the alleged victims were one of your family members and they were not prosecuted so essentially you're related to one of those 20 that were not prosecuted how do you feel i would get very upset Mm-hmm. Like, why were these other victims put us put ahead of my family, mm-hmm. you know? Because mm-hmm. I, I don't think that was right. Right. I think it's a big deal on closure. I mean, yes. luckily... So I know, like, yeah, as, as the opposite, being, like, the jury and being the judge, I mean, it'd be a long, long time. But you have a piece of shit in front of you who did this. Mm-hmm. And he needs to sit through that. Mm-hmm. Bore or whatever it may be for him. He needs to sit through that and acknowledge and be, like 
yeah, have that closure for these families because Mm -hmm. it, it's not just a number. These are, these are families that were ripped apart and broken because of his disgusting ways. Like, I don't even know how else to put it. Right. And I mean, luckily they do know where their family member went. I mean, they're not, they're no longer missing. Right. Mm -hmm. So they have some sort of closure, but I feel like I would be the same way in that I would want to wrap this up with a nice little bow and, you know, be able to say that he for sure did it because he was convicted of it and Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. Another thing for me being, you know, so in tune with true crime and things like that for my personality, I would want to hear those details because there may be stuff that I don't know. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so where some of those families were saying like, oh, I'm glad that those gory details weren't put out to the I public. I would have wanted to hear it. I would have wanted to hear it so I knew exactly what happened, what happened because that's just my personality. But I can mm. definitely understand why some people are not like that and are like, I'd prefer just not to know they're not here. It doesn't change the fact that they're here yeah. or not here. Yeah. I don't, you know, and I can completely understand that. But for me personally, I would have definitely wanted them to be prosecuted. Mm-hmm. Well, also, like, on that note, I feel because a lot of them were on the street and they probably felt like their lives weren't important. So mm-hmm. then not to be prosecuted mm-hmm. after their deaths were discovered. I feel like that's just, like, another, like, straw on a camel's back. Right. You know, it's mm-hmm. like... My mom wasn't just a prostitute. My mom wasn't just mm-hmm. a druggie. Like, mm-hmm. she was also a mom who was brutally murdered. Mm-hmm. Like, she deserves that time, too. You guys didn't protect her before then. Yeah. People were out crying, saying, mm-hmm. you know, you need to look into this. Nobody would listen. And then finally, I mean, like, I keep going so back much... to that victim that wasn't reported missing for three years. Right. So much happens that they decide, okay, well, now we finally need to look into this. And we finally figured it out. But... Yeah, we're not going to prosecute him for yeah. that. Like, that would be really hard I, for me. If, yeah, so if that was my family, I would be livid. Yeah, I agree. Um, And then my last one is going to be, what is it? Nature versus nurture. That's right. <laughs> Which one is it? Nature. Okay, why? Because we've seen the mentality of the mom, piece mm-hmm, of shit, mm-hmm. and the brother, I still think he has something to do with it. He's another mm-hmm. piece of shit because he didn't stop it. Mm-hmm. If he didn't know, like... How can you not know? Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. You mm-hmm. like no, you know something and you didn't stop anything. Mm-hmm. So I rest my point. Nature. I agree. I kind of feel like maybe nurture could be a part of it. I mean, but like there's a lot of families, especially within that time frame, I'm sure, that were raised on a farm that didn't turn out to be murders and like slaughter people. Right. There's lots so, of people who've grown up with terrible home lives and yeah, haven't murdered anybody. Exactly. <laughs> so even though like I do feel like it played a part in his mental a little bit that he wasn't clean, like he wasn't taken care of. He was, you know, the way that like he he was raised, I do feel could play a part in his like mental, but I do feel that it was more of a nature thing that his just like genetics are messed up and right. his, yeah. No. Well, his father was abusive. His mother was so cold hearted. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, that one example that I you know, yeah. where I painted that picture of the car accident, the car accident and then like them uh, butchering the calf that he had purchased. I mean, yeah. with all of those things, you know, it just makes you like it really paints a picture. It doesn't to me, it, it explains it, but it doesn't give him an excuse. You know what I mean? It mm-hmm. explains how he got here and why he is the way that he is. But it doesn't make me feel any better. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Which is why I have to agree with you. 
Okay, so with all of those discussion questions in mind, head over to our Facebook page, like, follow, share, you know, all that kind of stuff. Then scroll down, you're gonna see our Amazon link. Go ahead and click that, do your shopping on the way by. Then keep going and you will see discussion questions for episode 17. And in the comments, answer these questions for us because we're truly interested, especially like with all this unknown, you know, we Mm -hmm. definitely wanna know what you guys think. So I will repeat them for you really quickly. Number one, was David involved? Number two, do you think these women were tortured for long before he slaughtered them? Three, why did he kill? Four, how many deaths would you attribute to him? Five, how would you feel if one of these alleged victims were one of your family members and they were not prosecuted? And six, nature versus nurture. On the post with these discussion questions, we will also include a picture of him. And if you guys have any questions for us, you can also post them there as well. We would love to interact with you. And with that, we'll wrap up this week's episode on the stinky pig farmer who could have played Gollum from Lord of the Rings. No makeup or special effects necessary. Come (laughs) back next week, addicts, for another CA meeting. And until then, stay alive, stay alert, and and stay stay caffeinated. caffeinated.